Thank you for listening to sermons by Chaplain Braswell. We hope that you are encouraged by these messages and that God will continue to bless you. And now, today's sermon. All right, well, if you have a copy of God's Word, I hope that you do. I invite you to turn to Psalm chapter 145. Psalm chapter 145. I I went back and looked at my notes, and I remembered that we've been in Psalms since 2019 started. I went back, and I was thinking it was about February, but I went back and looked, and sure enough, the first uh, Sunday in in January, I was looking at Psalm chapter 1. We uh, obviously didn't hit all the Psalms between now and then, but we did hit, oh, about 12 or so, I guess. And this will be the final one. And then uh, after this, we'll have um, a couple more weeks of, uh, uh, of preaching from uh, Chaplain John, who will be with us uh, for, for the next couple of Sundays. And then I'll be preaching uh, for Palm Sunday and then for Easter Sunday. And I just described all the Sundays coming up. They're coming up that fast. And then uh, after Easter, we'll start a a new uh, preaching series after that. I'm excited about this psalm. It is one of my favorites. It is under the category, I would say, of a psalm of praise. Uh, The purpose of this psalm, which is also uh, written by David, is he wants his reader to praise the Lord as he is trying to demonstrate that himself. He, He does it under the theme of God being... I would say great, Uh, God being the greatest. That's a word that that gets flown around a lot. Wayne Gretzky, I I don't follow hockey very much, as you can imagine, somebody from South Carolina just never had the opportunity to. I didn't really even understand how to play it until I was probably an adult and somebody explained it to me. But I understand that Wayne Gretzky earned the nickname the Great Gretzky. Nine-time MVP, broke all kinds of records. That was his nickname, was the great uh, Gretzky. Uh, Muhammad Ali, what did he say? I am the the greatest. I did know about that all my life, of course, like everybody. It's famous. We, we live in a world where it, who's the greatest? And, and remember in the, in the Gospels, Jesus was asked by the disciples, who's, who's going to be uh, the greatest? In your, in your job evaluations, I'm sure it's the same even in, the, in, in, in civilian jobs as far in, in, as, as military. You, you, want, you want your supervisor in some shape, form, or fashion to say something about how good you are. Uh, it, it would be nice to be able to say you're number one of however many or number two of however many. Right. That, that's kind of that's that's the that's the competitive world we live in. Um, the I kind of joke about it when I when I, I go to these briefs and that we talk about what an officer evaluation is. And if if your supervisor says something like he fulfills all his tasks and duties, that's his way of taking grandmother's advice of if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. You know, he's a good chaplain. He's OK promote him if you get a chance. No, we, we want him to say, hey, promote him ahead of peers and all that. We live in a world where it's all about who is the greatest, right? Well, we know that God calls us to, to be servants, but ultimately what this psalm is getting at is that there's no doubt who the greatest is, and it's God. And as our sister has already read uh, seven verses for us, we're going to look today at several ways that this passage, I believe, talks to us about the greatness of God. So what we're going to look at today in this passage, we'll, we'll read most of, the, most of the chapter together as we go through this morning. 
We won't exhaust it for sure, but what, what we will try to do is, is let's look exactly at what are these qualities that makes God great. So we're going to look at about five qualities that makes God great. And then we're going to talk about how do we respond to that greatness. And I think you even see our, our proper response to the greatness of God. You see it in this passage. So let's look at them together. If you're taking notes, I'm, I'm going to begin with a point number one, the greatness of God. Number one, we see his great works. We see his great works. You see this in verses three and four. We just read them, right? God is the Lord is great and he's greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. And then it says this. It says that one generation will declare your works to another and will proclaim your mighty acts. The greatness, very specifically, is tied to the works that he has done. God reveals how great he is by the works that he has done. In fact, the psalmist says this. He says, it's so, his greatness and his works are so great, we as humans, we don't even have the capacity to fully understand how great they are. Uh, he's, he, he, he makes a comparison this way. John Wesley made this comparison. He said, he said if you compared a worm, a worm that crawls in the ground, that, that could understand a man, he said that would be sort of a comparison to a man, any of us, understanding God. Wesley was trying to make the same point. God's searches are unsearchable. And of course, David, he didn't know what Google was, and he didn't have all this information highway that we have. And, and if you're like me and you've ever done any research, whether it be academic research or just looking at a certain topic, you can go down a rabbit hole for days and days and days, and you can search and search and find all kinds of information. There's a lot of it out there. You could, you could spend the rest, you could leave chapel today, you could go home, and until you go to bed tonight, you could search some very specific, down to the minute detail of a topic, and you, you'd feel like you didn't exhaust it. But David is saying that the works that God has done are even more unsearchable than that. The first greatness of God is we see the greatness of his great works. Now, it's one thing to say that God does all these great works and God has done all these great deeds. Wouldn't it be unfortunate if God didn't care about you and me? I've heard it said before, if God was all powerful and he didn't have any love, that'd be a very scary thing. But not only does this passage talk about God's great works, number two is this. It talks about God's great goodness. Look at verse 7. We've, we've looked at this already, but let's look at it again. He says this, They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall shout of your righteousness. One of the earliest uh, blessings I ever remember was what? God is great. God is good. Doesn't really rhyme with food, but we just kind of make it work, right? Let us thank him for our food. God, that, that ties into what this passage is saying, that we teach children. Why? God is great. God is good. So therefore, what do we do? We thank him for food. See, that carries the idea of provision. That carries the idea of goodness. I, I can't help but think about the New Testament. When Jesus talks about how good the Heavenly Father is, he gives the example of a, of a, of a loving dad. He said, if you're... 
if you're if you're a loving dad, he wouldn't you wouldn't give your child a scorpion or a snake, would you? No, you wouldn't do that. He, he's making the point that, that we care about our children and we do good things for them. And he says, if you can do that, then how much more can the Lord give uh, good things to his children? God is good. That's what this passage is saying. He talks about this, this great goodness, this abundant uh, goodness. Over the years, as, I, as I've spoken to people and, 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 and read, read many materials that talk about this as well, it's interesting that many times you and I will get our picture of who God is from our parents, sometimes even specifically through our dads. And, and I was thinking about that. There's, there's some people who see God in a certain way because of maybe their family background. Some might see God as this menacing policeman with a radar detector. He has no sense of humor. He's tapping the nightstick. He's waiting for us to make a mistake. Maybe God's an angry parent who's always critical. No matter how well we do on our report card, always insisting we could do better. We all come from different backgrounds. And many times our family background will, will, will think a certain way about God. What David is saying, and what I think the good news is for us right now, is that this God, he's great, he's done great deeds, but he is also genuinely good. This God genuinely has your interest in his mind because of his genuine goodness. What a comfort it is to me that to know, no matter what our backgrounds are, no matter what we may have experienced in life, it doesn't change the fact that this God that David is calling on you and I to praise, he's saying, this one is good. You may live in a life where people were not good to you, but we, we know that this God is, in fact, good. Number three is this. He, he has great works. He's good. But also his greatness is in this, his great love. We haven't read this passage, these verses yet, so I invite you to look at them with me. Uh, Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9. This may sound familiar because it comes up in other places in the Scripture. He says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love or loving kindness, some translations say. Verse number 9, The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all he has made. That shows up first time in scripture in Exodus chapter 34, when Moses, after he's broken the first set, the first set of tablets, the Ten Commandments, and now God, again, the goodness of God, he's going to write them again, and he's going to give them to him again. It is in that context that God himself first uses this phraseology right here to describe who he is. This is God's own description of himself that David picks up on in trying to describe the love of God. That word there, uh, my translation, the English Standard Version says steadfast love. That's that same Hebrew word hesed that has to do with God's love, his loving kindness, the, the, the steadfastness of that, of that love. When you look at this passage and you look at the descriptions about the, about the love of God, it's almost like, you know how you peel away an onion? Onions have layers, right? If you look at that, the first, the outer layer may be God's works, maybe God's faithfulness. It talks about that in this passage. Uh, the second layer is God's goodness or God's, God's rule. But the core of all that in this passage is made up of God's love. 
if you peel away everything about God, when you get down to it, you see that love is, is in very much many ways at the core of everything about him. In fact, First John said it this way, said that he didn't describe God as being a loving person. He just pretty much says God is love. You can hopefully in some ways describe me as loving, I hope. I hope that I can convey that. But I can't with a straight face look at you and say, I am love. I am the epitome of everything love is supposed to be. I can't do that. And maybe you feel the same way. But God, He is love. That ties in with everything else we're saying about God. His works, His faithfulness, His love. Romans said this, And while we were yet sinners, there's His actions, Christ died for us. You see where His his works ties in to His love. God is love. So He's got great works, great love. He also has this. If you, this passage talks about God having a great kingdom. A great kingdom. Let's read a few more verses together. We haven't looked at these yet. Verse uh, 10, we'll pick up there. Talking about God's great kingdom. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all the saints will bless you. They will speak, here it is, of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Verse 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. That's the fourth time he uses the word kingdom. And your dominion, which is really another way of talking about that kingdom, endures through all generations. This kingdom of God's is great. What is the kingdom of God? Well, right now when we look at it, it's it's not like the Roman Empire. It's not like some other empire or some powerful country. It's a little bit different, isn't it? Jesus said that the kingdom, he used all these parables, and we, we actually did a sermon series on them, but he used all these parables to describe the kingdom essentially as God's rule and reign in your life and in my life. The kingdom is God's rule and reign in you and in me. This kingdom is great. This kingdom is one that is going to endure. If you look at history, R.C. Sproul, I was going back and looking at some of the things that he said, and he shared shared this. I'll I'll read it to you. He said, Rome conquered the known world, but eventually it fell to barbarian invasions. About a thousand years later, the Byzantine Empire, which was great, it was overrun by armies. Byzantine was renamed Istanbul. The sun never set on the British Empire until it was broken up about the same time as World War II. Kingdoms come, kingdoms go. That's been the ebb and flow of history. But David is saying in this passage that God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Remember when Jesus was talking uh, to the disciples and that he asked him, who do men say that I am? And what did Peter say? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And remember Jesus told him, he said, he said I'm going to call you Peter. And on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Thinking about this concept of God's great kingdom, Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail against this kingdom. Now let me ask you a question. Gates. Jesus says the gates of hell. Are gates 
Would you say that is an offensive maneuver or a defensive maneuver? A gate is defense, right? If I have a gate around my property, it's because it's defensive. I'm stopping somebody on the offensive. And Jesus said that he's going to build his church, and he says the gates of hell won't prevail against it. In Jesus' mind, he's seeing God's kingdom as being on the offensive yeah. and Satan on the defensive. That's interesting to me because what I'm afraid of many times when we think about uh, what's going on in our world is sometimes we as Christians, we start wringing our hands a little bit. And we get a little scared and we kind of go on defense and we forget that Jesus said his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His kingdom is the offensive. All around this world, there's all kinds of things that go on. We see evil all around us. I, I, see, it, I see it every day. I get asked about it all the time. But... Brothers and sisters, do not forget that this kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Jesus said that we are on the offense. Jesus said that we are going to win. An old Southern Gospel song said, I read the back of the book. You ever read a book and got to, just went to the back and then you don't have to read the book, right? I read the back of the book and guess what? We win. The reminder for us today is that this kingdom is great. This kingdom is one that is going to endure. Let me say it very clear. God is not up in heaven wringing his hands wondering what he's going to do about anything. That is not how he operates because this kingdom is great. I'll share one more thing about God's greatness. That is his great faithfulness. And when you read this passage about the faithfulness of God, I'm going to share with you just a couple of several things about his faithfulness that what this passage says. So we won't try to read every verse, but I want to I want to walk through it with you in Psalm 145, God's faithfulness. Look at Psalm 145, verse 14. It says in 145, 14, God helps those who fall. He rises up those who are oppressed. So God is out there, his faithfulness in that he helps us. Uh, God, you see in, uh, in verses uh, 145, verses 15 and 16, it talks about his provision. Look what it says. All eyes look to you. You give them their food at the proper time. When we pray the Lord's Prayer. What did Jesus teach us? Give us this day our daily bread. God's faithful. God provides. He provides for our basic needs. Look at verse uh, 17. It says, The Lord is righteous in his ways and kind in his works. God relates to you and me. Look at verse 18. The Lord is near to those who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Part of God's faithfulness is that God listens to you, and he listens to me. Look at verse 19. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him and hears the cry and saves them. God not only is faithful to listen, but he answers. And then God protects in verse 20. The Lord guards those who love him and he destroys the wicked. He reminds us that he protects us. This God is faithful. Many times we talk about us being faithful and we strive to be faithful. But don't forget that God is the one in this passage who is in fact faithful. We see God's greatness throughout this passage. Now I want to share with you what I believe also woven throughout this passage is the idea that God is great, but that God is calling us to respond to that greatness. Whether it be His great works, whether it be His great love, His great faithfulness, His great kingdom, all those things. How do we respond to that? Let me share with you three things. 
in this passage about our response to this greatness. Number one, responding to God's greatness is a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. What, what do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. This passage says, Every day I will praise and exalt your name forever and ever. Daily. It is a daily choice to praise the Lord. It is a daily choice to walk with God. Why do I read my scriptures or why do I not read my scriptures? Why do I pray or why do I not pray? Because I choose to do so or not to do so. Why do I respond to people in a certain way? Because that's what I choose. David is calling us to respond to God's greatness in this way. Every day I'm going to exalt your name forever and ever. He even says in another place, I will meditate in this passage on your works and on your ways. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to respond to God's greatness in the right way, it's going to become a daily lifestyle for us. It is going to become regularly part of what we do. It's a lifestyle. Uh, number two is this. We pass on this idea of God's greatness. We simply pass it on. More than one time in this passage, he carries this idea of one generation will commend your works to another. And one generation will declare your mighty acts to another. If you go back to uh, the first five books of the Old Testament, it talks about passing this on to your children. Share, walk, sharing it with your children on your, while you're walking, while you're sitting down, while you're eating. It's this idea that, that this idea of God's greatness, it is something that we carry with us, but it is something that we pass on. Who is in your life right now that you can pass on the goodness of God? Who in your life right now, is it a family member? Is it a child? Is it a grandchild? Is it someone you go to school with? Is it somebody that you work with? Who in your life right now could God perhaps be calling you to declare His works to through a kind word, through sharing with someone who's going through a tough time? Maybe God just simply says, won't you ask Him if, if you can pray with Him? Pass it on. In this passage, what you see is, as it becomes a lifestyle for me to praise the Lord, to live in such a way that I want to declare His deeds through my very thoughts, my heart, and my actions. There's going to come times, I guarantee you, where God is at work in somebody's life that you and I run across, and God's just simply whispering in your ear, hey, pass it on. This is your opportunity to do exactly what I'm talking about. It's a lifestyle. Pass it on. And then number three, keep the end in mind. Let's look at the last verse in this chapter. Here's the pass it on again. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. In other words, people will hear me talking about it. But then the last phrase. Let all flesh, or some translations will say, let every creature bless his holy name forever endeavor. I don't know about you, but in a given week, there's a lot of things that, that I will allow to command my attention. Some things are, are very important. Some things are not so important. And sometimes this is a struggle. 
But I encourage you to somehow in our own lives to figure out how do I keep this in mind? Uh, this idea of blessing God's name forever and ever. This idea that keeping the end in mind. This idea that Paul picked up on when he made that great statement that at the name of Jesus, one day every knee will what? Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I don't know about you, but when I go through a, a typical week, there are those times where it is very easy to lose sight of that. But I hope that as we've looked at this psalm together today, and I hope and pray for those of you who's, who's been going through the psalms, I hope that somehow we can get a glimpse of this idea that Praising God's name forever and ever, that is our ultimate goal. And that as we go through our life, may you and I keep the end in mind. What is the meaning of all these things? It is to bless His name forever and ever. And it's amazing to me how even though when I say it out loud, it sounds like something that's way out there, I'm going to leave this place and God is saying to me, that's the end state what am I going to do about that right now? I invite you to pray with me.